Today on Ag News Daily. We were able to um, scale up and take those systems, apply it to new farms. Um, I formed French Coffee to help uh, provide the resources for that. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. Ashton, this is super random, but I'm sitting in my office today and I happen to look out my window and there's probably mm, 30-ish disgusting, ugly blackbirds sitting in a tree right outside my window. I'm, I know this is really weird. And this is probably an overshare, but I am really... Um, doesn't make any sense, but I'm really afraid of birds. <laughs> um, definitely not weird because I'm extremely terrified of birds. So I just find more things out about you every day that just, you know, makes me feel really connected to you. Yeah, it's an odd thing to be connected on, but I just like if there's birds outside of our front door, I will not go out that door in the summer. I just am I don't know. They just give me the heebie jeebies, but that's just well, that's just how my day is going so far. I, I don't mean to give you the heebie-jeebies, but if you want to hear my story on why I'm terrified of birds, it has to do with a bird flying into into my car one day. So mm, uh, see, that makes sense why you'd be afraid of birds. I just have an irrational fear. There's no reason behind it. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends have irrational fear of birds. One of my roommates has one specifically for pelicans. So I don't <laughs> think we're the weirdest kids on the block. No, I suppose that's uh, that's probably true, Ashton. Uh, but actually, spe- speaking of birds, one of the top poultry companies, Pilgrim's Pride, has plead- pleaded guilty and agreed to pay a criminal fine of nearly $108 million for taking part in a price-fixing and bid rigging in the broiler, broiler chicken market. The company's plea came at a hearing on Tuesday in a federal court in Colorado, and the plea agreement says the company's participation in a conspiracy, quote, with at least one competitor affected about $361 million of sales from 2013 through 2017. And so Pilgrim is now the first company to actually plead guilty for its role without doing any sort of a settlement uh, or fixing outside of court. But so far, we've seen 10 executives and employees at the major broiler chicken producers have also been previously charged. And this investigation, according to the Justice Department, does remain ongoing. So this is probably just the first of many uh, guilty pleas to come, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's interesting that they pled guilty. I I want to say like that soon, but I'm not exactly sure how, you know, all of that stuff goes legally. But I do know that if, you know, the uh, district court judge there in Colorado doesn't accept their plea that it will go to trial. And that just mm-hmm. seems like it would get pretty messy, but I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I assume that they would take their guilty plea and move on. But I don't know the legal ramifications of doing that either, Ashton. So it's definitely not a question to ask me. I'm not a lawyer. Well, Delaney, I have some ethanol news. And again, having to deal with the weather because the U.S. ethanol production industry saw its largest week-to-week decline on record because of weather last week. The U.S. Energy Information Administration said that production averaged 658,000 barrels a day, which is a drop of 253,000 on the week and the lowest average since May of 2020 as some plants cut back or 
idle production because of the cold winter conditions last week and a lack of available natural gas used in production. Kind of along that, that same route, we're seeing a lot of people debate on how Texas specifically, I, I keep saying Texas when talking about, you know, the, these weather discussions, just because that's where I'm from. That's where I was, you know, when all this happened. So I, it just kind of pertains to me, I guess. But um, a lot of people have been discussing on, you know, whether or not Texas handled it the right way, whether or not um, the energy market did all they could, what what have you. And we're hearing from U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley talking about this. And he called last week's power outages in Texas a perfect example of why the Green New Deal won't work, which I find very interesting just because we're still in the you know first 100 days of Biden's administration. So we've been talking and looking at you know what that administration is doing. But during Grassley's weekly call with ag reporters earlier this week, he says that the crippling winter storm emphasized what he's been saying about energy policy for the past 20 years. He was quoted as saying, it has to have four components and one is continued existence of fossil fuels until they phase out and something else phases in. But in order for that to happen, Grassley says there must be dependable alternative energy sources. And while Grassley is blaming alternative energy failures, some say that the Texas privatized energy market didn't have the capacity or the state didn't need warnings to protect generators from impending cold. But just think that it's interesting how this is all playing out, not just, you know, talking about the energy market, but really seeing how it plays out in government and policy. Well, Ashton, speaking of playing out, there's one situation playing out right now in Brazil that uh, I just was aware of today that's going on in Brazil specifically. So let me try and break this down as easily as I can. But basically, a few months ago, most Brazilian farmers made quite a few forward sales when prices were much, much lower. Well, we've seen a lot of soybean farmers now defaulting on those forward sales, meaning they're not taking a physical delivery. They're not making physical deliveries of this crop. This has sparked some lawsuits and has potentially caused financial losses for trading houses. We have seen, let's see, about by last July, about 40% of the 2020-2021 crop was already disposed of and spoken for compared to the five-year average of just 12%. So we saw a lot of farmers forward contract. And again, like I mentioned, we've seen some lawsuits. It hasn't been super widespread across the industry yet, but here's the kicker, I think. If you default on making a physical delivery to wherever you are taking your soybean crop in Brazil, and again, I'm a little fuzzy on what their legal laws are when it comes to grain deliveries and all that stuff, um, a little different than the United States, but if a Brazilian farmer decides to default on that forward contract, the penalty ranges from about 20 to 50% of the value of that non-delivered commodity. The kicker, Ashton, is that even if Brazilian farmers default and have to pay that 20 to 50% fine, they're still going to make more money defaulting on that because their local prices have doubled since a lot of those forward sales were made. So this could create uh, some 
pretty large supply and demand issues for Brazil if we see quite a few Brazilian soybean farmers default on these intended deliveries that they were supposed to be making. And so we've seen this, like I said, come now, come forth now in a few different lawsuits. Um, this is definitely going to be a story I think we need to continue to watch, Ashton. And Honestly, I don't know who we would ask to have on as a guest to discuss this, but this definitely could have some long-term market implications if we don't see Brazilian soybean farmers follow through on some of those forward cash sales. We could see some of the clearinghouses, some of the trading firms lose money because of this as well. And we could see some supply and demand issues here. So this honestly is a just a very preliminary early story, but I think one to keep an eye on. You know, Delaney, I always love hearing, you know, what you think about current issues and your interpretation of things. So I'm going to have to try and, and keep an eye out on somebody that will be able to help us there so we can dive more into that. But we haven't seen any dicamba news as, as of late. We had back in the summer, but earlier this week, we saw Corteva AgriScience say that they will no longer sell Fexapan herbicide in the U.S. in Canada. And in a statement, the company said that they had made a business decision to discontinue sales of Fexipan in the U.S. and Canada, and they continue to see strong demand and broad adoption of Enlist technology for seed and Enlist herbicide crop protection solutions. And this decision allows Corteva to focus customer and applicator training, sales, and distribution resources on our leading Enlist weed control system. Their statement also said that their commercial team will continue to support customers who have selected Roundup Ready to extend technology from or from a Corteva seed brand. And those customers may use dicamba herbicides offered through other brands while still accessing other soybean herbicides from Corteva and benefiting from the strong yields of Corteva brand dicamba tolerant soybean products. And as we know, late last year, the EPA issued a five-year label for three other dicamba formulations, those being Eugenia, Tavium, and Extendamax. And they kind of left it up to states to decide if they wanted to add anything to that. And Illinois has been the latest state to add additional label requirements, those being temperature restriction, application date restriction, and sensitive crop registry. But folks, if you are a Corteva fan, if that's what you use, if you use Fexipan, you're not going to be seeing it in the markets here pretty soon. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting, too, because obviously Corteva is one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, manufacturer of those type of products. And they definitely lead the industry when it comes to agronomic uh, options like that. So it's going to be interesting to see if other companies follow suit and discontinue the usage of these dicamba products. I think it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out as well, Delaney. But I'm interested to see how the markets played out today because I am all out of news. So if you don't have anything else to share, I'm ready for that conversation. Well, just one quick other piece of news, Ashton, and that is the Senate overwhelmingly on Tuesday voted to confirm the nomination of Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. So it does appear he will be taking the helm of the agency. But leading us into the markets for today, Ashton, we're going to be talking about coffee here coming up. And so I thought this piece of news leading into the markets was also very fitting. We saw Arabica coffee rose to a 14 month high amid more signs of a smaller crop in Brazil and expectations of improving demand. 
that'll certainly help our guest out who will be coming on the podcast here in just a few moments moments jay rusky who is a coffee farmer in california but in the meantime ashton let's take a look at where our major commodities ended for today and it was green well across the screen in the grain markets today as the march corn contract closed up five and a half cents to close at 559 and a quarter of the may up four and a half to close at 557 in soybeans today big moves to the upside as the march contract added 17 and three quarters cents to close at 1423 and three quarters the may up 17 and a quarter to close at 1425 and three quarters and in wheat today chicago march contract up 14 and a half cents to close at 680 and a quarter of the may up 15 and a quarter to close at 685 and a half. Hopping over to take a look at the protein markets today. Again, green across the screen here as well as the April live cattle contract added a dollar two to close at 122.22 and a half. The June up 97 and a half cents to close at 120.10. In feeder cattle today, the March contract added a dollar 80 to close at 140.37 and a half. The April up two dollars 15 cents to close at 144.75. And in lean hogs, not quite limit moves today, but pretty darn close with the April contract added three dollars to close at 89.42. The May up two dollars seventy cents to close at ninety one fifty five. And taking a look today at the Class Three Dairy Milk Futures, March up twenty nine cents to close at sixteen fifteen. The April up twenty nine cents as well to close at sixteen seventy four. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our conversation talking coffee for today's interview. For today's interview, we are talking to Jay Rusky, who is a coffee farmer and CEO of Fringe Coffee. I'm a big coffee fan myself. So, Jay, I'm super excited to have you on today. But thank you again for calling in. Well, it's great to be here. And I always enjoy talking to farmers and those who drink coffee. You grew up or you live now in California and have started raising coffee there, but Typically, when you think about where coffee is grown, you're talking about climates or countries like Guatemala, Costa Rica, Colombia, really, really warm countries close to the equator. Tell us a little bit more about how coffee has developed in your neck of the woods. Well, I grow in coastal Southern California, and I've been farming for 30 years um, here in California and um, doing a lot of um, not only avocados and lemons, which are a general crop in the area, but I've been exploring um, exotic fruit crops, um, fresh fruit crops. And um, to support my farm and my businesses, I was always looking for uh, a good crop rotation. We're very lucky to be here in uh, near the coast where we can basically harvest in four seasons. And so during this exploration, um, of looking for new crops. I worked with the local university, uh, California Farm Extension Services. Um, they saw my ambition and my um, my ability to, to um, push through and find when something doesn't work, try again. For different crops, but coffee ended up being one that I planted about 22 years ago with my avocados. Um, and just casually planted them, watched them. But what was happening uh, simultaneously was a development of a maturing coffee market. Um, as we know, as farmers, we don't want to grow anything that we don't have a market for, specifically these perennial crops. But we had the Starbucks uh, revolution that was, was creating what we call a second wave of coffee. 
And then it moved into this what we call third wave of coffee, where coffee shops are serving coffees that they talked about the origins and they're roasting right there uh, at at the shop and and bringing the the the, the farmer to the conversation uh, for the consumer and and raising the quality too. And in turn, uh, those consumers were paying more per cup of coffee for that quality and that connection. And so that development of that market has. Um, exploded not just in the united states but globally uh even the, a lot of the asian countries have really um cherished and celebrated coffee with pageantry and and so you're seeing coffee prices that are going above a thousand dollars a pound um so for us at fringe um i did my farming and saw success and i saw farmers that really wanted uh to diversify out of their avocados and lemons a basic commodity crop and by um, say me kill the first plants and redo it and get the system going, um, we were able to um, scale up and take those systems, apply it to new farms. Um, I formed Fringe Coffee to help uh, provide the resources for that. And so over the last five or six years, we now have 65 affiliate farms growing commercial coffee in Southern California. And then Fringe um, supports them with breeding coffee. So we provide them with plant materials or pushing new hybrids. Uh, we support our farmers with um, uh, cultivation support. So we have Fringe farm advisors outside the university system. And then we um, provide post-harvest, which is the whole conversation, which is like wine, and then the sales. And ultimately trying to get above 50% of the return back to the farmer. So it's a very unique company, and it's supported by a, a, a fast-growing global specialty coffee market. So, Jay, just for my clarity, I'm from Iowa, so I'm very familiar with the co-op system. Is your Are your 64 farms that you work with across California similar to a co-op structure, or is it different? Um, Fringe is, is different than a co-op. Um, we take certain elements of a co-op and try to apply it um, to the system here. Um, I found that if we um, become a C-Corp and uh, bring farmers in, I've created investment opportunities for French. So the, the a majority of my early investors uh, were farmers, actually. So they would buy plants and then they would um, provide seed capital to to um, build my company. Um, and then I provide advisory roles. Um, the, the, the key to what we're trying to do is create a unique company that's always a farmer first. So as a as CEO and my board, we're always saying, well, what's best for them? And there are several aspects we can provide that. And that's a, that's a mentality like a co-op. But really, um, as farmers invest, to be a C-Corp, you can um, gain more value as a company and as an industry, you can leverage better to raise capital um, because that's it, it takes a lot of capital to start a new industry. I mean, when we started this years ago, um, there was no equipment. All the equipment has to come from uh, Colombia or Co Costa Rica and takes, I mean, and the expertise weren't there and the plant materials, we have to build these germplasms. So, um, how do you do that? It's, it's not easy. It takes time and capital and the C-Corp was the way that we could we could do that. 
Well, Jay, it sounds like this has certainly been a journey. And I want to know a little bit more about the journey from, you know, planting seeds to harvesting, because I think myself and a lot of our listeners are, you know, more familiar with, you know, traditional kind of crops like corn and and soybeans, not so much specialty crops like coffee. So why don't you tell us about that experience? So um, coffee is a perennial crop, and it's one of the only crops around the world in which um, perennial mean um, it grows for multiple years like a tree. Uh, it's generally planted by seed. Um, so, um, and that is makes it um, more cost effective to establish, but also provides uh, some genetic drift. So what we're doing is taking seed, um, tracking that, and um, and to stabilize the plant material. So when the farmer gets a plant and the plants are just like if you were buying like an, an almond all walnut tree, they're in a 1.7 liter pot. Uh, we provide plant instructions. We plant generally in spring. Um, and then once you get in the ground, you have to care for it with irrigation. And that's one of the differences in California than the rest of the world for growing coffee is we have to irrigate them. The world's coffee is we call it dry farming, but it's in the tropics. So it's wet farming, but without assisted irrigation. So like all the crops in California, um, you know, 98% of the crops are irrigated. We irrigate the coffee. Uh, and that's actually a strategic difference for California is um, we can actually apply water um, more precisely. Uh, we can put um, nutrition and fertilizers in the water so that we can give the coffee plants what they want. So what happens, you know, we have to take care of this plant, prune it, grow it out a lot like grapes for about four or five years. Um, and then in the fourth year, they bloom. Um, there's a white blossom that has a, a jasmine aroma that goes all up and down the lateral branches. And um, once that um, they're pollinated, they're self-pollinating, but they do have some cross-pollination. period of the cherry that will take about... 10 to 12 months. Um, this is the tropics, generally from flower to harvest, it's six to seven months. But in California, because of our latitude, uh, we have this longer maturation period. And what I believe is this longer maturation period uh, develops the bean a little differently. Um, you have a different density, you have a sweeter fruit. And I think one thing that people in, um, that enjoy coffee around the world uh, no one knows that coffee is really a fruit. And uh, as a fruit grower, that's why I've pursued coffee. And so the, the fruit growing, we get this fruit that has a 20% sugar content. So we take that um, and we harvest these bright red cherries, which is really important in the harvest of maturity. Um, to continue on this, we go into a post-harvest process, which for me, being a, a new coffee farmer years ago, underestimated the amount of requirements needed to process coffee. Um, I think the world does not know this, but there's a fermentation process. Once you remove the skins, that can take um, three to six days. Then you have to dry the coffee. Quality coffee takes up to two weeks to dry. We can't just run through dryers and, and, and like we do with rice and, and grain and try to dry them in three days. It has to go slower. Uh, you get better quality that way. Then they go into a curing process for two months called Reposo. And then once that, there's a shell that you have to shuck the shell. So you run what we call the dry mill process. That, that then exposes what we call the green bean, 
which now you can actually see the endosperm. You can actually see the, 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 the grain, the, the bean itself is referred to, which is really a seed. Sort that out based on size, color, um, um, shape. And then that sorted coffee gets into the roaster, which we have specific profiles. Generally, the high-end nice coffees are lightly to medium roast. We do not do dark roast um, because there are sugars. So I know that was a lot to take in, but it is a very complicated process to produce a quality cup of coffee. It is. And that's the crazy thing is that people who farm even, you know, specialty fruits and vegetables, including coffee, are spending a lot of time on this crop. You know, corn and soybeans, it's a quicker process, probably not as much man hours to make sure that that crop is uh, taken care of. But coffee, you really have to focus on the science behind it, make sure the, the plants are taken care of, the trees are taken care of, and then you have all the work that goes into it post-harvest. So it's just crazy the amount of time you folks spend on growing, you know, high-quality products like coffee. Jay, I've got one final question for you. Um, As you Mm -hmm. look at the California coffee industry, you've obviously been one of the leaders in growing and developing this industry. How's the consumer reacted to that? Have you seen a shift in uh, coffee trends there in the state? Well, (laughs) You know, uh, when I was, when I've announced, I always say I came out of the closet as a coffee grower in like 2014, um, because most of people would call me crazy. Um, people would call me up and say, you must be doing greenhouses. And I'm like, no, we grow them with avocados outside and frost-free environments. Um, and I went to all the conferences and people kind of looked at me strange and I just, you know, I kept coming back. And then I entered my coffee into the contests. And started getting my coffee out to the people who were the big decision makers. Uh, and then slowly, um, they were like, wow, you guys are some of the best, making some of the best coffees we've had ever. And you're right up there with the best in the world. Um, as we roll things out, um, there's a huge interest right now for uh, this type of coffee. And coffee travels uh, from other parts of the world. To get to where we are, they say the average cup of coffee gets over 20 sets of hands touch it. And from a farmer's standpoint, supply chain, I mean, two people taking along the whole way, uh, a little bit for export, a little bit for import, a little bit for transportation, for drying. Everybody wants to take the, uh, a few pennies here that adds up and the farmer gets stuck with the least money of that. So with friends, it's, it's farmer, fringe, and to the consumer. We have a consumer right here in California. I see that, um, People are embracing it. I see the foreign markets who are looking for the exceptional cup of coffees like exceptional wine are embracing it. And so what I'm trying to do, and we're trying to do at Fringe, is to, um, to, to satisfy this big demand, is to get as many farms uh, established, to make sure we have quality uh, coffee processing, and to, to build this brand um, to support our farmers here. And I think generally we're getting support. And I think in the post-COVID market where everybody finally got to wake up and look at their supply, their food supply, they're realizing, wait, this thing, this coffee that I have every morning isn't easy for me to get. And, and so, and it's really good and we should support a farmer. So I think in general, the reality is people are really supporting the California coffee programs that Fringe Coffee is producing. Well, Jay, if any of our listeners want to show their support, how can they do so online? Where can they find you guys at? Well, we have um, a program now. The coffees that are roasted already, green beans, 
to be um, purchased online. So it goes from the farmer, we have different farms and some varieties, and then we, we roast it and we ship it directly out. So that's at fringecoffee.com. So that's fringe, F-R-I-N-J. Um, so it's a little different than fringe, but we do things a little differently here on the fringe. So um, fringecoffee.com is a, a good web portal um, uh, to, to, to um, support our farmers. And actually the whole, a lot of the coffees today has been a big shift. A lot of people are now doing some home brewing. So uh, you can start looking in the next few weeks for some home brewing. Uh, you probably have to get a grinder, right? Nice coffees you want freshly grind and brew within 15 minutes of your grinding. And that's one way you can really maximize your experience in your well, Jay, thank you again for joining us to chat coffee. This has been really fascinating stuff. Oh, it's my pleasure to share the experience that we have here in California. And um, I appreciate your opportunities that you gave me to talk to all of you. Well, again, a big thank you there to Jay for joining us today on the podcast. Really interesting to talk about different production that I'm not used to here in Iowa, Ash. And I don't think any... I don't, I don't suppose there's a whole lot of coffee growers, even in greenhouses here in uh, the state of Iowa. Yeah, I think you guys are, you know, pretty taken over with corn and soybeans. But I definitely think that it's interesting, especially when he's talking about avocados and lemons and kind of growing it um, intersectionally. But we're always talking to super interesting people and learning more about the agriculture industry here on the podcast, folks. So be sure to tune in wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Agnews Daily. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.